Well, the Academy Awards were Sunday night. It was the 93rd iteration for those keeping score at home. And as expected, the drama Nomadland starring actress Frances McDormand took home honors for Best Picture and, and Frances won for Best Actress and it was Best Director and Best in all sorts of ways. This wasn't really a surprise, but I think it's a film worth unpacking. So we are going to talk about the Best Picture winner, Nomadland, today. Hey everyone, Adam Holtz here, your host for The Plugged In Show. Focus on the family's weekly conversation about entertainment, pop culture, and technology. Thanks for joining us today. Well, in some ways, I think Nomadland is a pretty typical Oscar pick, and that is to say, nobody really actually has seen it. Uh, But it was also a small, quiet, intense, slow-moving indie story. And, And I think for all of those reasons, it becomes perhaps inaccessible to the vast swath of the movie-going audience. But, you know, unlike some winners in previous years where I feel like we just ended up in this dark, nihilistic direction, as I watch this movie in full confession, I just saw it this week for the first time. So I want to be really clear about that. I kept having these small aha moments. I'm like, you know what? This is a movie with a lot going on. There are a lot of themes and a lot of themes that I felt like had at least a, a tangential relationship to my faith, even if the movie itself is not mm, outwardly spiritual. So as I got to talking with my coworker, Paul Acey yesterday, it became really clear, we need to talk about this on the podcast. And again, some years we don't need to have a special podcast to talk about the best picture winner, but I think this one deserves it. Paul and I had a terrific talk and we are going to probably revisit some of those ideas and go deeper into unexplored territory as we kick this one around today. You know, one of the things we want to do on the Plugged In show is just give you a sense of what life is like in the Plugged In world. I mean, apart from our our really awesome cubicles that all look the same and so our, great. they're, so they're great. eight by eight you know, spaces of heaven. I think one of my favorite things about being a part of the plugged in team are the offline conversations we have about the things that we're reviewing. Uh, and so we want to give you a taste of, you know, kind of what life is like in plugged inville, if you will. But one of the other things that we often do on this podcast is we'll use a phrase like it could be a springboard to a deeper conversation. Well, today we just want to have a deeper conversation about Nomadland to give you a sense of what that might look like and what it looks like to connect the dots between a popular movie or an important movie. And then, you know, offer some thoughts on how you might be able to do that yourself with your friends, with your family, with uh, the people that you enjoy watching movies with. So we are just going to dive in and I'm really looking forward to our time today. I think it's going to be a terrific conversation. Well, Paul, our team talked a few weeks ago about this year's slate of Best Picture nominees. We especially liked The Father, which did pretty well at the Academy Awards this year, too, and Minari. But Nomadland walked away with really, I think, the best night of them all in terms of the big awards that it won. Why do you think the Academy picked this picture this year as its favorite? 
there's a lot of answers we could give for that, right? I mean, I think what you said in your introduction is right in some ways. It, it is Thank a you. typical Oscar type of movie in, in that it is artsy, it is a little bit slow, it's pensive, it's poignant. All those things are true. And yet it was pretty atypical in certain ways, too. Uh, the movie actually features a lot of non-actors in really prominent roles. Yeah. Um, it, it, the, as you might have guessed from the title, it zeroes in on nomad culture, which is essentially these people who go around the country in their vans or RVs, not really having a home, a permanent home to, to call their own. And so we meet a lot of those real-life people here. And so it feels a little, in some ways, like a documentary, as well as this drama that we find. Um, the cinematography is gorgeous. The acting is tremendous. Frances McDormand, as you mentioned, also won for Best Actor Actress. Um, and, and the other thing that I think is interesting about this movie, when you talk about Minari and the Father, those are two small movies when mm -hmm. you think about it. They're, right. they're really family dramas where the, the setting is very intimate. A lot of the other nominees talked about these huge issues, lots of politics, lots of big things mm -hmm. that you're grappling Racism. with. Exactly. Um, Nomadland was an odd mixture of both. Yeah. It deals with the aftermath of the Great Recession. So it talks a little bit about... Uh, people being disenfranchised from the economics of the country and what they do to survive. But it also focuses deeply on this one woman who's finding her way um, and really rediscovering herself at the age of 60. And she's played by Frances McDormand, correct? Correct. Um, tell me a little bit more about her journey, because she's not someone who has been, quote, a nomad very long. I mean, it's kind of a new thing for her. So what... What is the catalyst for her character? Her character's name is Fern. Um, what sets Fern on this journey? She has lived for most of her adult life in this town called Empire. Empire, Nevada. It's Empire, a real town. Nevada. Exactly. Yep. Uh, they, they actually, it, the whole town was essentially um, powered by this gypsum mill that was there. Mm -hmm. When the gypsum mill closed down during the Great Recession... In the entire, 2012, right? The, the movie takes place in 2011. So okay. the, the gypsum mill shut down sometime before that. Uh, we know that the entire town shut down as well. They actually eliminated the zip code because there was nobody there anymore. Um, so it almost becomes like a modern ghost town for it, all intents and purposes. It does. And she, she had lived there for most of her adult life with her husband, who also is gone now. He died after a, a lingering illness. And so she is without a home, essentially. She is without a husband. And she finds herself trying to figure out what to do next. She tries to get jobs down kind of locally, but that's not happening. So she hops into her van and she just starts driving. And as she drives, she starts meeting people who are part of this nomad culture. Yeah. And they become a little bit like a quasi family to her. Yeah. And let's say more about the nomad culture. What do we learn about this group of people? Because as you were saying earlier, it has an almost documentary feel to it. This isn't a fictional construct. This is something that is a real thing and the name that they've given themselves. It's not something that the movie makers have made up. So let's talk a little bit about that whole nomad culture. What does it consist of and, and what does that look like in the way that we see it in the film? 
The interesting thing about what this movie does and what actually there, there's a there's an actual newspaper article or magazine article on, that this this movie was based on. Hmm. Um, what you're looking at are these older adults. Yeah, they, these aren't like twenty somethings who are going off to find themselves. These are fifty, sixty, seventy year old people who decide that they want to get out for one reason or another. Oftentimes it's because of the economics. Mm -hmm. It's just cheaper to do that. Sometimes it's for much more personal reasons. We hear uh, this woman talk about how a friend of hers, a co-worker of hers, uh, died just weeks before he was supposed to retire. And he tells her, don't leave your sailboat in the driveway. Mm. He has this sailboat in the driveway that he's never used. And he says, don't leave your sailboat. And so she goes out to explore the world that she's never had time to with, with this nine to five job of hers. Yeah. So the, the, the rationale for taking on this lifestyle are, are really varied. Uh, but you, you see that there are some commonalities. They love the freedom they love the lifestyle, and they're willing to put up with a whole lot to do it. And they're kind of migrant workers. Like, it seems like most of them have these sort of established seasonal places that they go at different times. And when we see that with Fern, at one point she is working, it seems like, for a potato farm, you know, and she's sorting potatoes. Into... Beets, actually. Is it beets? Okay, yes. my bad. Yeah. They look like... You know, no, no I totally hear you. Yeah, they do. They look like potatoes. Those are really big beets. <laughs> Those then. are big beets. <laughs> um, and she does a couple of stints at an Amazon warehouse that seems like it's very seasonal, like during the Christmas season. Um, she she rots down to Arizona a couple of times. And sometimes she and another friend are just the people who help at these RV camps. Um, and it's interesting to see how they their lives intersect each other because I think most of us would look at them and say they're homeless. But I think one of the interesting scenes in the movie early on is that Fern has an interaction with someone in town and they're concerned about what she's going to be doing. And a little girl says, my mommy says you're homeless. And Fern says, not homeless, houseless, which is a distinction that it seems like most of these people would not consider themselves homeless per se, even though a more traditional perspective would say, of course you're homeless. You're living in a van and you don't have anywhere that is home. So maybe let's start there and talking about the themes of the movie. What does this movie have to say about what home is? Because I think that's a, a an idea that really percolates up here. It's a great place to begin this conversation, honestly. Uh, one of the quotes that, that sort of resonates with me that takes place, again, very, very early on. She's, she's in this, this, this Amazon Fulfillment Center. She's talking with this person who has tons of tattoos on her arm. And yeah. she, they're all like quotes from Morrissey, right? Yeah. But one of them that she gives <laughs> is, home, is it just a word? or something you carry within you. Mm. And that sort of sets the template for the entire movie. What does home mean? Um, it was fascinating. I actually watched this movie again with my wife. My wife had not seen this movie before. And she loved it, right? She really did not. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason is, is because she couldn't get around this concept of, of not having a home, not 
wanting to be with your family, with your community. It was a really hard thing for her to sort of step into Fern's shoes, as it were. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it can be a very difficult sell. And yet when I look at the movie myself, the idea of, of home does seem like it's flexible. It does seem like for a lot of people it can look differently for other people. Yeah. And one of the things that I thought about as I was watching this movie is the early Christians. You never really hear about um, Paul or a lot of these other famous, famous figures from the Bible ever having a permanent home. They would travel from place to place, finding yep. community as they went. And in some ways, that that was one of the spiritual echoes that you mentioned earlier yeah. that really struck me as I was watching this movie. Yeah, and how do we see that play out, Paul? You know, you just—it's it, a fascinating thing. It's a fascinating thing because Fern, the character— she seems to have a difficult relationship with her family. Yep. She has some opportunities to stay in more stable environments. She doesn't do that. And part of the reason is I think that she finds a really strong community. And you really talked about this earlier offline. Yeah. Um, where she found this community of, of, of people that she really likes. They're all a little bit quirky. They all think a little bit differently. Um, but that community... Even if it's only temporary, if she only sees it at a parking lot here, a retreat there, a national park in, in South Dakota, she yeah, finds— they're really all over the place here. all over the place. Um, she finds that sense of community. She finds these people who she gravitates to, even if she only sees them once every six months. Yeah, I, I really loved that part of this movie, and there are a couple of scenes— where you see them gathered around a campfire and it almost has a feel of when you were a kid and you went to camp, like they share stories. At one point um, there's a character who has died and they throw things in the fire as a sort of remembrance of who she was. And so it's not liturgical in any kind of literal sense of that word, but it's almost like the rhythms that this group of people have together, they have that almost liturgical community feel to them. Um, now, I will say the closest the film gets to anything like real spirituality has to do with a couple of characters who sort of have these transcendent experiences in nature. Uh, one character talks about the high point of her life being in this place where she's surrounded by swallows and there are swallows all around her. Uh, and that, that idea is kind of revisited later in the film. And so I think in some ways that's the closest it gets to God is never mentioned at all. As far as I can remember, I think one person maybe is wearing a cross, but that might be as close as we ever get. You hear some references to an afterlife. Potentially yeah, that's that true. There is, there's, there are references to an afterlife, but but you get this idea that out in nature, you're somehow closer to what's really real than if you're just locked up in suburbia in your house and disconnected from things. Would you agree with that? Is that a thought that you had while you were watching it? I would totally agree. And and I wanted to go back to, to what you really started off with talking about that, that scene by the fire. Yeah. They're throwing rocks into that, that fire because the character loves rocks. Yeah. Right. And 
rocks become this this metaphor throughout the movie. You yes. see rocks over and over and yes. over and over again. And you get this sense, and I think that, that director Chloe Zhao really meant to do this. Um, you get this sense that the rocks are a nice contrast to the transients that we see. Not mm. only in that these people are moving from place to place, but that they don't have anything to hold on to. We see that the right. tr- most treasured possession of Fern crashes to the ground. There's nothing that she can hold on to. These, these are people who hold things very loosely. And life itself becomes a little bit more transient. The only thing that that is is permanent in some ways seems to be these rocks. So you find this to to go back to your original point, the nature that we see, it's an experience. It's yeah. not something that you hold on to. The movie is trying to tell us, I think, that it's what we do with every moment, every day that counts, rather than the things that we take with us, the things that we buy, the things that we keep. Um, those experiences are what make life worthwhile. Well, and it's interesting to me that I think building on that, there there are two other contrasting motifs, and the contrast is huge. Uh, the desert and the lush West Coast. So the vast majority of this movie takes place essentially in various deserts. You know, we see mountains in the background, but it's not even really about the mountains. And this idea that it's almost like these relationships are an oasis in the desert, you know, that they find meaning and significance meeting in these places, uh, and it gives them life. You know, a couple of scenes really prominently picture saguaro cacti in the background. And again, I think it's one of those things where visually there's all kinds of meaning packed into the cinematography and what we're shown. Uh, and then a little tiny bit of a spoiler warning. Um, she develops a, a friendship with a man named David. Uh, and David is actually played by David Strathairn and he's fantastic. And Almost everybody else in the movie are, are actually real nomad people. They're not Hollywood actors. But David um, is invited by his son and daughter-in-law to move back in with them. And it's somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. It might be Northern California. It might be Oregon. I wasn't quite sure. And Fern goes to visit David. She He has invited her to come and, and be with them. And it's clear that David would be open to a permanent relationship. Um, But his son and daughter-in-law have this amazing house, a very traditional, stable, and let's say rich family. And in the midst of that, we see Fern wandering on a cliff and it's raining. And she just sort of, you know, sucks in this rain metaphorically and, and, and literally. And there's a lushness to the entire experience, but it's almost like she doesn't even know what to do with it. Like mm-hmm. there's this opportunity to be rooted, to be planted, to experience, you know, just being drenched with life and love and relationship, but Fern can't quite get there, Yeah, you know, and I don't want to spoil the movie any more than I probably just did, but what a contrast between the desert and the lushness of of that moment and we see Fern trying to get her head around it. Yeah, it's interesting in in that in that setting she actually 
spend some time in a bed, which has got to be the first real bed that she has slept in for a long time. Yeah. And yet there's an evening where she leaves that bed, goes back to her van to sleep in the cold and hard environs there. And and the movie, it seems like, suggests that sometimes as much as we like to be comfortable, it keeps us away from sometimes the things that are really important to me or yeah. to us. And, and I wanted to, to, to talk about just a weird little experience that I had, right? I, I love to travel. I love to go. I, I actually went to a lot of these places that they go to in this movie, which was super fun. Um, but as we've gotten older, my wife and I have gotten older, we stay at nicer hotels. We, right. we, we have real beds, all that kind of stuff. I don't necessarily remember those mornings when we wake up in these really fantastic places um, very clearly. The morning that I remember on vacation was one morning we were we were camping in Yellowstone, mm. a tent. It got down to 10 degrees. We get outside. There's snow all over the tent. We're the bears have their cold. sticks ready <laughs> to, to skewer you, right? All I could think of was how nice it would be to actually get into our little minivan and start driving, right? So we could turn on the heater. Yeah. But that moment was so real and so tangible. And it's I can visceral, still, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's I can your whole still body. Feel it. I can still feel that that morning, and it's still one of the most precious mornings that we've had in in our entire vacation lives. Hmm. And sometimes I think. That, that the discomfort that we feel in the moment can be what we truly take away and treasure later on. And that movie gets to this. Man, I love that. Well, we have been doing something that we don't always do, which is just unpacking themes. But I want to take a at least a brief plugged-in turn because I think we need to. Um, this movie is rated R, really, for one scene. Tell us about that scene and what people need to know about it because we've been kind of gushy about what we like about the movie, but there's a strong caution here that we have to deal with. There is a very strong caution. It's one of the reasons why we didn't talk about it as much on the Oscar podcast as we might have otherwise, actually. Yeah. Uh, There's a scene where where Fern, Frances McDormand, she wades into this this river, and we later see sort of a zoomed-out picture of her floating in this water completely nude. Yeah. Um, it's not intended to be titillating. Right. It's not intended to be uh, provocative. It's really meant to show, I guess, what we were sort of talking about earlier, that... that, that uh, sort of raw connection with that nature. That raw connection with nature. The, the, the fact that she doesn't have a lot of layers between her and it. Yeah. But... As a viewer, of course, you do see not a lot of layers there. There's no right. layers whatsoever. And for people who are who are sensitive to that, and especially families who might sit and watch this, again, it's rated R, so this is not necessarily a movie I would sit. And that's really the only content. A little bit of language here. There's a tiny bit of language, but not much. Yeah, yeah, and you do say some again to to emphasize the closeness that she has and the discomfort that she sometimes feels. You have some um, interesting bathroom moments. Well, right? yeah, there's that. I forgot about that. But good so to point you, that out. So you do interesting have bathroom moments. Interesting bathroom moments. So you do have these elements. For the most part, uh, they do sort of speak to Fern's experience. I think both of us would agree that you probably technically didn't need this nude scene. Right. But you can see why the director put it there at the yeah. same time. And it's 
two or three seconds. I mean, it's not, and I don't, I'm not trying to minimize it, but it almost by the time you realize what you're looking at, it's like, oh, oh, that's done. Um, and I think it does accomplish those things, but it, it's certainly the kind of content that you would want to be aware of uh, before you get to it. And for those that would be interested in the movie and would want to perhaps skip that scene, just know that when she starts wading into the water, you can skip forward 30 seconds and you'll be, and you'll, you'll be, be golden. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this is one of the frustrating things that we have about some of these great movies, especially movies this year. It seems like you have some very well-told stories Yes, that barring just 30, 60 seconds of content could have gotten a much kinder rating, could have been much more navigable for families. It seems as though a lot of the movies this year, they had these moments that they just felt like they had to get in there, but it really makes it a deal killer for a lot of a lot of viewers. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And that's obviously why we exist at Plugged In, or one of the reasons is to give you what you need to know about the stuff that you might be interested in watching so that you're informed before you make that decision. And really what we're doing today is the other side of the coin. We want to be a catalyst to help you think more deeply about the stuff that's going on in pop culture so that you can say, you know what, that's a story I think that we could do something with. And I hope that as you've listened to Paul and I talk today, that you have maybe gotten a better understanding of what we mean when we say that something can be a great springboard for conversation. Honestly, I feel like we're we're just getting started. I mean, this is a movie that deals with grief. It deals with loneliness. It deals with meaning and purpose. And I do want to say just one other thing, and then I'll let you maybe chime in on a last thought if you have a someplace you want to stick the landing, Paul. <laughs> I think in terms of what I took away from this movie that really was challenging is... It is easy to make assumptions about people's lives based on what we see in a superficial way. And let me just be a a tiny bit personal here. Um, There is a little park a block from my house that I drive past every day on the way to work. And over the last several years, I have noticed there are people who regularly park there for a while. It has become a temporary home. And they're living in vans. They're living in campers. Um, And I think if you are not in that place, pretty easy to be a little bit judgy. I'm going to just be a little bit transparent here and, and feel free to judge me for being too judgy if you need to do that. But, you know, you go down there with your kids and you can think, I don't want people squatting in my park, you know, uh, to, to put a, you know, to say it bluntly, this is a movie that changed my perspective. And it's a movie that I think maybe more than anything for me, it says every individual has dignity. Every individual has a story. People you may think are one thing may be something else entirely. I think the whole houseless versus homeless conversation, pretty interesting because it's clear that some of these people have chosen this and it wasn't forced upon them. And so I think I walked away Uh, Even though the movie doesn't deal with God per se, it almost provoked a prayerful response in me of, Lord, help me not to jump to conclusions. Help me not to assume things about people who look a certain way or say a certain thing. Um, This movie really opened my eyes to an entire subculture I didn't know existed. 
and helped me to see them uh, with different eyes. Yeah, and I believe that that's that's a really beautiful point. Um, I I wish I could go on for like six or seven different points because there's so <laughs> much richness in this movie, um, and and a lot of as you said earlier, a lot of Christian subtext. One of which you just brought up. The the thing that I might have found most convicting in this movie was stuff. Huh. The attachment to stuff. I, yeah. In America, we do like our stuff. And I think I'm particularly guilty of that. And I, I'm even more guilty than you are. <laughs> I, like, I like my home. I like my gunk. I like all of this. I like my collections. Exactly. That's exactly right. We have these collections. We have these, these things that are precious to us. Um, but they can be traps, too. Yeah. And and I think that 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 the Bible reminds us over and over about holding things loosely. Mm. The idea that what is truly precious in our lives is not the stuff we accumulate. It's not the treasures that we gather up here on earth. It's it's what we build toward. It's the relationships we build. It's the beauty that we absorb in God's world. Um, this is a this can be for a lot of people. I think they would find this movie to be a little bit dark and a little bit sad. And there it's are definitely sad. elements of that. <laughs> it really is. I mean, my my wife, as I said, went to bed feeling a little more depressed than she started the movie with. But for me, the the transcendence that we see, the 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 switch of values yeah. that this seems to indicate felt challenging to me and it felt a little Christ-like to be yeah. honest with you. And and I yeah. guess that that's probably what I'd leave with. Yeah, and I think it's a great example of how a well-told story can be something that God uses to accomplish his purposes in our lives. And I don't I want to be careful not to over-spiritualize, but I think sometimes he uses unexpected stories. He can certainly use a Christian movie to accomplish that, but he can also use a movie like Nomadland, which is anything but a Christian movie <laughs> and yet has some connecting points you know, with the caveat that there's some, some real issues that you would want to think about very clearly before you sit down to watch this movie. So I hope that our conversation today has been a catalyst to spur you to think more deeply about how you relate to entertainment. Uh, and, and maybe a question I would leave you with is, who do you talk about movies and TV with? Because I think part of the fun of working at Plugged In is that we have this sort of baked in community where we can have these kind of conversations until somebody asks us when we're going to get back to work because they're, <laughs> they're tired of listening to us talk. Uh, but I think that's the, the important step here in, in being intentional is, man, talk about this stuff. Watch a film with your family, maybe Nomadland, maybe a different film that might be more appropriate if you've got younger kids. And then carve out time to say, what do you think of that? What ideas resonated with you? Uh, where maybe was God at work convicting or jostling or somehow poking at you? Maybe for you to see something in a new way and to, to process something from a new perspective. So uh, we would love to hear about experiences you have had, maybe watching Nomadland, maybe watching one of the other Academy Award nominees this year, or just a movie that you found really significant for you personally. 
you can share those stories on our Instagram and Facebook accounts, and, and we would love to hear them. And also as our thanks for being a part of the Plugged In Show family, today for a gift of any amount, we would also love to send you a copy of Mr. AC's book, Burning Bush 2.0, How Pop Culture Replaced the Prophet. And honestly, it is full of stuff just like we have been talking about. <laughs> we geek out in movies in that book. We do, but I love the way Paul connects the dots uh, in that book with the things that we engage with and where there might be spiritual overtones or undertones that you'll want to think more deeply about. And you'll find a link to order that book in the episode notes for today's show, as well as on the plugged in blog entry for today's conversation. Or if you prefer, you can also call 800-A-FAMILY. Well, as always, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope you have enjoyed Paul's and my conversation about Nomadland. And we look forward to talking with you again next week on The Plugged In Show.